Our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 6 and 7. It's also the text for our sermon as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. Now, I've just announced two chapters of Old Testament narrative, so this is a longer scripture reading than we're used to. My general rule is that at least in the printing of the Bible I have, the limit is two columns. If it's more than two columns, it's too long. So we have three columns. So I want to remind you of two things. First, the public reading of Scripture is itself a means of grace. This is not just the pathway to the sermon. In fact, none of the worship service should be thought of preliminaries to the sermon. Each part of the service has its own reason for being there, and that includes the reading of Scripture in particular. It's one of the reasons that even in a rather long scripture reading, I'm not going to pause to explain anything or draw anything out. I should not be talking. The scripture reading is its own thing. Second thing, it is leading to the sermon. And for the sermon, you will need many of the details in this reading. I'm not going to have time to remind us of every last thing that is said in this passage. I'm going to be bringing out how it converges, the details converge as a message for us. And so, as is always the case, I will remind us this morning, because it is lengthy, we ought to pay careful attention to the public reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 6 and 7. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark 
to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah. God had commanded, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Hebrews 11 verses 1 through 7.
Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 7. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would enable us by the presence and work of your Holy Spirit to look to Christ, to look to him in faith, to be challenged by the life that he gives us as a gift, and to rejoice both in that challenge and in the promises you have proclaimed to us. For any of this to happen and to be fruitful in our midst, it must be because of the working of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would do this for us through the preaching of your holy word, For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we come this morning to Genesis chapter 6 and 7, we begin uh, two parts on the story of Noah and the flood. Chapter 6 and 7 this week, chapters 8 and 9 next week. And as we have paused in the story, the place where we broke it up is right at the moment we are told the waters prevailed on the earth. So we have been told about the uh, wickedness of humanity in creation. We are told that God speaks to Noah and says to build an ark by which he's going to preserve animals and creation with him. God sends the flood, wiping out all the rest of living things. And we are left in the story with the water covering the earth and the ark born up in the waters. What do we do with this story? As usual, I have dangers to warn us of at the beginning, the wrong turns, the ways we can be distracted as we come to an account like this. There is the great danger of moralism. What did Noah do right? How can we be like Noah? Now, we know we're not supposed to do that. That's not gospel. It's not good news. But we are so quickly thinking of the story in this way. There's another danger. That's the danger of obsessing over the science of all of this. How did this work? We should all be comfortable saying, we have no idea. It's like asking the science of the resurrection. The point is not the science of it. These are weird, strange events that don't happen all the time. God is acting supernaturally. That should be good enough for us. There's another danger, and this might be the biggest one. The danger of cuteness. Somehow, we have made this story cute. Whether it be because of, well, it basically is because of countless children's storybooks. 
And I want to warn you up front that cuteness is not neutral. Cuteness is not harmless. Making a story cute requires eliminating all sorts of details or ignoring all sorts of details that are actually there. As we come to this text, we need to be hearing it as it is presented in God's Word. And it is presented as part of a bigger story. It is part of the book of Genesis. It's part of the coming right after the account of creation and the fall into sin. It is part of the rest of Scripture leading to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we must hear this story in those terms. So, how do we do that? How do we make sure we are both in the details of the text but also hearing it as part of the one story of the Bible. Well, we're going to do this in three steps. First, I think the most important thing we need to do to get there is to ask why did, or why is this story happening at all? Why are these events happening? What is the reason for the story? That's the first thing we need to pay attention to. Then we're going to hear that as both an announcement of judgment and of salvation. That's the second and third thing. So first, the reason for the story. And then second, the story as an announcement of judgment. And third, I think the part that we so easily get wrong most often is the story as an announcement of deliverance or salvation. First, the reason for the story. Well, of course, we have to remember context. What came before chapter 6? Well, chapters 1 through 5. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have the account of creation. We must remember in particular the emphasis in Genesis on the goodness of God's creation. When God made the world, there was a refrain that he declared it very good. He loves his creation. It is a good creation. Creation is not something he's helping people escape from. The story of the Bible is not creation bad, go to heaven one day. The story of the Bible begins and ends with God caring about his creation. We must have that in mind for the story of the flood. After chapters 1 and 2, what happens? Well, then we get 3 through 5, and that's where everything goes wrong. So on the one hand, we have the goodness of creation, but then we have our human rebellion. We have our fall, our rebellion against God, and our our representatives, Adam and Eve. We have the story of Cain and Abel and that horror of what we do to each other because of our sin. We have the descendants that come after uh, Cain and after Seth leading up to Noah. And then when we come to our account, we are told in summary statement, verse 5, of chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. We are told that this, this rebellion of humanity has devolved, descended to the point of the summary statement being Every intention of his heart is only evil continually. And the particular expression of that was violence. Oh yeah, but those first few verses of the chapter. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. There is some sort of intermarrying happening. And we are told that this is when the Nephilim were on the earth. 
Verse 4, the giants, the mighty men of renown, the mighty men who were of old. Something strange is going on here. And the text tells us that in particular, God's decision to send the flood is in response to that happening, this intermarrying happening. Verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Now, that's not a limiting of individuals' lifespans. Noah goes on to live longer. This is a reference to 120 years until he's going to send the flood. So he is declaring a death sentence, as it were, on humanity as a whole, saying because of this intermarrying thing that is happening, because of the inclination of the hearts being only evil continually, because of all the violence later on in verse 11, in 120 years, he's going to judge. Now, the great question that so much time is spent debated is what is this talking about when it speaks of the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, and this being the time when the Nephilim, these giants or men of old, whatever we want, however we want to understand that, are on the earth. What is going on here? Well, there are two main good options. And I want to name both of these because, in my opinion, neither should be rejected easily. The first option, and this is the oldest one, this goes back to Jewish interpretation, and many Christians in the early church share this interpretation, is that Sons of God means angels, fallen angels, some sort of supernatural being. And daughters of men simply means humanity. And this is an intermarrying of these angelic beings and humans. And the result of that intermarrying is the birth of the Nephilim. The second interpretation. Sons of God means the faithful line of Seth, the line of promise, Daughters of men means the rebellious line of Cain. And the story is about intermarrying between the faithful covenant line, blurring in with the world, with those who are in rebellion against God. All right, I'm going to disappoint a whole bunch of you. I am fully persuaded the second option is the right one. Now, I want to be very careful. There's reasons for this. Angels can't marry people. That's just like a very clear thing in Scripture. They are spirit. They can't have children with people. Also, there are reasons that this account is going to, the issue of two different lines, the line of promise versus the line of the serpent, it's what's going on in context in Genesis. And as I hope to show you later, it is what matters dramatically for what is happening in this account. Moreover, God judges people for what is happening here. And so it seems weird to be blaming the sons of God as fallen angels when the judgment does not come upon the fallen angels but comes upon humanity. Now, why am I taking so much time to do this? I want to admit to you, I want the other interpretation to be right. It's way cooler, all right? So if you're sitting here thinking, I want it to be because the, uh, you know, it's angels intermarrying and there's these weird giants that come from that, I also want that to be true. I just don't think we can get that from the text. However, the reason we are rejecting that is not because it's weird. 
not because it's strange supernatural things happening. In fact, I am persuaded from the text the Nephilim really were something strange and weird going on, just not following from that intermarriage. This is a strange primordial time, the time before the flood. Our imaginations ought to be open to all manner of strangeness and things that we are not used to happening then. That is not our motive. It is not because we reject strange supernatural things. It is rather, in the movement of the text, what is the great concern of Genesis? But the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. The great concern of Genesis is the line of promise and the line of humanity that is following the way of Cain, the way of rebellion against the Lord. And what is happening is those lines are blurring. They're intermarrying. The line of promise, we could say, is being threatened. Now notice, that's also the flow of the story, even if you go with the other interpretation. So what matters here, the line of promise is being threatened. Well, in response to that, the line of promise being threatened, only evil continually, violence on the earth, God says he's going to send a flood. That's why the story happens. But sending the flood is not the whole story. There's another reason this story happens. We are told, verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then verse 9, the generations of Noah, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. In contrast with so many others of the line of promise, intermarrying, blurring in with the line that is in rebellion against God, Noah is righteous. Noah finds favor in God's sight. And be careful now how you hear that. This does not mean Noah never sinned. This does not mean Noah was somehow living with perfectly sinless perfection. What does Hebrews 11 tell us? Noah lived by faith. In the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, the entire story of Israel, the issue is always faith. What God calls his humanity to do, his people to do, is to seek him by faith, look to him by faith. And Noah's righteousness has at its heart that faith. So, God tells Noah that he's going to send this flood. He gives Noah instructions for building the ark. And he tells Noah that he's going to then bring animals to him in pairs. Although seven pairs of clean animals. Remember that detail. That's an interesting one. He tells them God's going to bring animals in pairs to the ark so that they might all be spared. And notice it's Noah and his family. There's some wonderful covenant theology here. Who are we told is the righteous one? Noah. Who is it who God spares? Noah and his household. This is how God works. He works generationally. He works in families. This is all the way through then to Israel and the practice of baptism today. Noah and his family are spared. The rest of the account, God sends the flood. In the midst of it, judgment has happened in response to all that rebellion, but also deliverance. Noah and all those animals in the ark spared alive. Then verse 24 of chapter 7, And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And so we see two themes, judgment and deliverance. Let's look at each of those. Judgment. This story is absolutely horrifying. We are told repeatedly in the account of the totality, the completeness of all those who had the breath of life being wiped out. 
we are told in a way that is emphasized disturbingly just how complete the destruction is. And at this point, if we're going to hear this as a warning, the great enemy, is the one I already warned us of, is cuteness. What is the antidote to that? Well, we must take this seriously as a real historical account. Now, when I say take this seriously as a real historical account, I don't mean then prove how this is all possible scientifically. That is a wrong turn. God is acting miraculously. God is acting supernaturally. There's any gazillion of ways God could have made all of this happen exactly as described that we could never recreate or look into scientifically. That is not the point. Science has its own wondrous, glorious domain that it investigates and describes. Genesis is the foundation for science and the goodness of science as investigating God's good creation. But that great, glorious domain created for it is limited. God is able to act beyond, outside of that. God is able to act in a way other than what science describes. And so the obsession with proving or defending this scientifically is itself a wrong turn. Who knows how God did it? But what do I mean then? What the text describes happening happened historically in history. And it is horrifying. Let's just go with this detail just to get us into how horrifying this should all feel. Life upon the ark. What would this have been like? All the animals in whatever way God is making this happen. I don't know. Maybe he made them all sleep the whole time. We don't know. Maybe it's all just baby animals. But regardless, the, the, the picture of all of this life crammed in together is the opposite of cute. All of the food, all of the waste, all of these sounds, all of this together in one place. Now, take that earthiness, which we ought to be picturing, and expand that now to all of life being wiped out. The carcasses floating everywhere, all around. When the waters later recede, that's next week, but when the waters later recede, all of that death is not gone. I mean, we have no reason to think it would be from the text, and the text emphasizes the totality of the wiping out of life. This is horrifying. More than that, in the, so in the zoomed-in, earthy details of the text, what life is like on the ark, what it's like to have all these living things destroyed, it's all disturbing. But actually, let's zoom out and look at it big picture. We have described for us here nothing less than the very undoing of creation. And we need to hear Genesis 7 as coming right after Genesis 1 and 2. See, this is the problem when we pull out Bible stories and we view them as Bible stories like that's a thing. It's one story. Genesis 7 comes after Genesis 1 and 2. As the waters above and the waters below converge, as the text describes for us, what is one of the first things that would have been noticed? The sun is blotted out. It's dark. The undoing of the creation of light and the sun. As the waters above and waters below converge, we're told waters break forth from the deep. It's raining. What is happening? But the undoing of God's dividing of the waters above and the waters below in the creation account. As the waters rise to cover the land, what is happening but the undoing of God's dividing of water from land in the creation account? As the waters cover the land, it's wiping out all plants, all animals. The undoing of God's creation of plants and animals 
in the creation account. And then, as humanity is destroyed, the undoing of the crowning act of God's creation in the creating of Adam and Eve, of humanity. And so in the imagery of the text, in the way it's described, what is happening in the flood is the undoing, the unmaking, the tearing apart of God's creation. All of that stands as a kind of horror. Whether it's the zoomed-in detail of the grotesqueness of all of it, or whether it's that sense of the cosmic horror, of creation itself coming apart, the very universe, the created order coming apart. And all of that, God's acting in judgment, stands as a warning. Brothers and sisters, we need to be sure to hear this as a warning. The book of Genesis is being given to Israel as part of the Pentateuch, after, they have left the pro- after they've left Egypt and before they're going to enter the promised land through the preaching of Moses, these are the books given by Moses. And Moses giving this account, one of the reasons as they go into the land is to say, this is what your sin leads to. This is what, if you, if you embrace the path of life contrary to God's word, contrary to the good law that God gives, this is what it unleashes. And the real way to hear this as a warning is to be confronted with the fact that God's judgment here is not arbitrary. Now, have you ever felt that way? In fact, a moment ago when I was describing the horror of the story, maybe you felt that way. We even have the language of the text. God says, I've regretted that I've created man. There's this horror, this violence of what they're doing. There's an announcement of regret and then the judgment coming. Like God is just on a whim, switching back and forth. First, I like this idea. Now I regret it. Well, a couple things there. That language is speaking what we call anthropomorphically. The scriptures also tell us that God does not change. God is eternal. He doesn't have a sequence of moods or feelings or experiences. He relates to creation eternally. So what is being revealed? But that in man's choice to sin, there is something that it leads to. This is not arbitrary. It is rather God saying to humanity, have your own way. Because what is our sin? Our sin is living contrary to the created order. Sin is a matter of living contrary to the way God made the world to work. When God uh, um, unleashes this violence upon creation, what is he judging humanity for? For violence. He's saying, fine, you want violence? They're all killing each other. He says, this is what it leads to. This is what it does. See illustrated, here is the path you have chosen. Here is what your way of living heads toward. And this is where it must speak to us, confront us. Are we persuaded, are we persuaded that sin is a matter of living contrary to the created order? God's commands are not arbitrary. God's judgments are are not arbitrary. God's commands tell us, this is a way of living that is contrary to the way I made world to work. God's judgments show us, here is what that way of living would naturally head to. None of that is arbitrary. All of it is wise about reality. And that is what God sets before us here in this text. We, as a Christian church, desperately need this creation rootedness 
of how we think about sin and judgment, in how we relate these things to the broader world, and how we speak of them to our children, and how we as individuals fight against sin. When God gives us commandments, it is like a warning sign at a curve in a windy road going down a mountain. That warning sign that says turn left is God saying there is an actual cliff over there, right? It's not just God likes to put up signs. He likes to put up rules and like see if you'll do what he says. And if you don't, aha, judgment. There's rather an actual cliff, an actual way of living that is actually destructive in reality. And what God's judgments are is a foreshadowing, as it were, a warning in time of what that way of living would head to, the very undoing of creation, the undoing of life as it is made to be. Now, you must relate to the particular sin you struggle with. You must speak to the world in this way about the things where we we desire the world, the culture around us to be more wise as speaking about reality. You see, if if, if you see that warning sign, and you're not convinced there's actually a cliff over there, right? Well, now it's just a matter of, I'm going to swap out the rules, right? Now I don't like that rule. I'm just going to ignore that sign. But there is an actual cliff. The picture of judgment as the undoing of creation is warning us of that. And you see, that is a warning that the covenant people in every time and place desperately need. To be wise, to be fruitful as we fight against sin, you must think of it not simply as an, not as an arbitrary rule, but as God warning you of a real danger. God warning you of something that actually would be destructive. We say, okay, we hear the warning. We're used to this movement, in the Old Testament narrative. We hear it as warning. Our sin, we are, we are alerted to the reality of our sin. Well, where then do we go with that? Well, you see in the scriptures, water is over and over both a warning of judgment and an announcement of deliverance, of salvation. Peter, in his letters, speaks of the flood multiple times. He speaks of it as being a type, a pointing forward to baptism. The water of baptism, water symbolizing judgment, the warning against rebellion against the covenant, but the water of baptism also a cleansing. And so we must ask, thirdly this morning, how do we see that cleansing, redemption, salvation in this text? Verse 24 of chapter 7, And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Here we are in our passage. Judgment has come upon the world. It's covered with water. And yet here's the ark filled with representatives of all of God's creation. All of God's creation represented in this box floating on the water. Why? Well, you see, God is acting not only in judgment, but also in redemption. The third thing this morning. Here is where we need to go a bit deeper in how we view this story. And here is where we need in particular, remember we spent all that time talking about the Nephilim and intermarrying and what's going on. Remember the emphasis we drew out, that the problem, even if you go with that other interpretation, the problem is that the line of promise is being threatened. Here is how I'm convinced we typically think of the story of Noah. 
God uses the ark to save Noah and his family from the flood. Right, is this a fair summary? How we typically view it in our imaginations. God uses the ark to save Noah and his family from the flood. I want to suggest to you that that's kind of wrong. Rather, we ought to hear the story in this way. God uses the flood to save Noah and his family from the line of the serpent. God uses the flood to save the line of promise, to save Noah and his family from all this intermarrying and the attacks of the line of the serpent that is going on. That what's happening in the story is that evil is is threatening to overwhelm the creation. Evil is threatening to take over, only evil continually. And where the, the greatest danger happens, where the story is most fearful, is not the violence, it's that intermarrying of the two lines. Because God had told Adam and Eve it is through that line, through the offspring of the woman, that the serpent would one day be defeated, that his head would be crushed. We see here nothing less than another attack of the serpent upon the line of promise, trying to stop that from happening. And God sends the flood, later he's going to do something similar in the Tower of Babel, to protect that line of promise. The flood, beginning, middle, and end, the whole thing, is a way God is rescuing, saving humanity from the line of the serpent. And it's something that he is doing for you for your sake, to bring about the day when the Christ would be born, the gospel would go to the nations, humanity would then be saved, every nation of the world saved through what God would do through that line. But to get there, he had to protect that line. And that is what he is doing in this text. God, by his grace, sends the flood to limit human sinfulness to put an end to that expansion of evil upon the world and to protect the line of promise. Indeed, as we view the text in that way, as being for the sake of Christ, because one day the Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, will be born to that line as the one who would bring salvation. The shape of Christ, the shape of the eternal Son of God is suddenly all over the place in this passage. God sends the flood because humanity is wicked and sinful. Noah, he is righteous, but we know that can't possibly mean sinless perfection. That means faith. Well, how can it be that a holy and righteous God can save a human being who has even just one sin, who has but one error in his entire life, instantly requires judgment? How can it be that Noah is rescued simply because of his faith, his covenant righteousness before the Lord in that sense? How is any of this possible? Well, in that combination of judgment and salvation, we have nothing less than the shape of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That it is possible because one day the human who would be truly sinless, truly righteous, absolute sinless perfection would take this judgment upon himself. And it is for the sake of Christ that Noah and his family are spared on the ark. And then, of course, we had that wonderful detail. Seven pairs of which animals? The clean animals. Well, why seven pairs of the clean animals? Well, of course, God knew he was later going to give them permission to eat animals, and the clean ones would be the ones they would use to start herds, so maybe there's extras to get the herds going. That's possible. But in Genesis chapter 9, Noah is going to offer sacrifices. 
And those sacrifices would be from the clean animals. That all along on the ark, as it is borne up on the waters, are the clean animals who would be offered in sacrifice. Representing the blood that would be shed that makes all of this rescue possible. That there on the ark are the clean animals pointing forward to the cross of Christ, pointing upward to the grace and love of God, who would of himself take that judgment on himself. The shape of the Son of God. But more than that, why is there a box floating on the water full of the representatives of God's creation? If everyone is sinful and terrible, and if Noah's great and his family is great, why not just zap them all to heaven? Right? Just get this over with. In fact, don't we ask that even today? Why don't God's people just go to heaven if that's the goal of everything? Ah, why is there a box full of representatives of the creation on the waters? Because that's not the goal of everything. Because God loves his creation. God cares about his creation. He has declared it good and he will not abandon his creation. That that box floating there declares that the waters are cleansing his creation. And God is saying when he judges, that's what he does. His judgment fixes things. His judgment sets things right. His judgment does not annihilate the creation, but cleanses it, makes it how it ought to be. And those animals then are there because God's promise is not of death and going to heaven one day, His promise is of death and then resurrection, new creation life, bodies raised, the creation made right. That in that very presence of animals in the ark, of Noah and his family in the ark, is the promise of nothing less than the resurrection of the body. Because God loves his creation. Your body, your humanness is a good thing. And the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ is of his setting all of that right, undoing all of the brokenness of our bodies and of our humanness. You see, in the story of the flood is the very shape of the gospel. The animals, the death of Christ, solving the problem of sin, representatives of the creation as the promise of new creation, of resurrection, of God's loving as good creation. And all of that stands then as promise for your future. In 2 Peter, Peter speaks of the flood as a type, an image of the final judgment. And the flood is imagery of cleansing. The world's still there. It's undone as it were, but then set right. Likewise for the final judgment. It is the fire of cleansing by which God cleanses his world, by which he brings about resurrection life. And that is God's promise for you. Congregation of Christ, God does not change. And so we see the shape of the Son of God in this text for our faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we Thank you for directing us to our Lord Jesus Christ, to his glory as the one in whom you have fulfilled all of your promises. We praise you for your faithfulness in solving the problem of sin, in acting to set the world right in him, and for your promise to do that finally and completely when Christ returns. Help us to live by faith toward that promised future. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.